0: This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Today I'm joined by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and we have a lot of legal topics to get to. It was a big week. We're going to unpack all of the highlights. Joe, what are we talking about today?
1: Hello, Jessica. You took the words right out of my mouth. It indeed was a big week in politics and law. We're going to give you an update in former President Trump's lawsuit against the National Archives, an unusual set of charges filed against the parents of the suspect in the school shooting in Oxford, Michigan from this week, and we're going to delve into the oral arguments in a challenge that may end abortion protections first codified by a Supreme Court decision from 1973. Let's discuss those oral arguments first, Jessica. The opinion in Roe v. Wade ruled that the U.S. Constitution protects a woman's right to choose to have an abortion the 1992 case planned parenthood versus casey further clarified those rights but roe has been the marquee case that represented abortion rights for nearly half a century anti-abortion activists and legislators have been fighting to overturn Roe since day one and they may finally get their way it's a long story and this particular chapter begins with the mississippi law so let's begin there jessica what does mississippi's law do
0: Yeah. Well, simply put, it contravenes Roe and Casey. Mississippi's law is a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. There are no exceptions for rape and incest. And so it is one of these increasingly restrictive laws that we're seeing proposed and or passed throughout the country, particularly since the composition of the Supreme Court changed to be the most conservative court since the 1930s.
1: And what is the current status of that law out of Mississippi? Is it currently legal?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. No, under the court's current Supreme Court case law, as I briefly said, under Roan Casey, this Mississippi law is not constitutional. Now, why not? Because. Casey, which is the current standard, says that up until about 24 weeks of pregnancy, which is the viability line, when a fetus can live outside of the womb, then states cannot ban abortion. They can implement burdens as long as they aren't undue burdens. They can impose restrictions. But... After 24 weeks, then states can ban abortion. Obviously, the problem for Mississippi is that we're talking here not about a restriction but an outright ban, and we're talking about nine weeks earlier than 24 weeks. It's, a, again, a ban on abortions with no exceptions, as I believe, for rape and incest after 15 weeks of pregnancy.
1: All right, but we all know that the court doesn't have to take all the cases presented to it. So why in this case didn't the court just refuse to take the case? Or put another way, why did the court take the case?
0: I think because... They've been waiting for this because a lot of the conservative members of the court have been waiting until they have a solid conservative majority and they can re-examine, by which I mean gut, Roe. So the court, when frankly I think they knew they didn't have the votes to overturn Roe, you saw the court really not take up a lot of big abortion cases. There were certainly some, we've talked about Whole Woman's Health out of Texas, but you know, what has really changed here? We now have a court where you don't need the chief justice. You don't need him in order to overturn Roe. And of course, in some ways it was the chief justice, and we heard this in oral arguments, where he's the one really, I think, casting about for, is there a way where we can try not to have that sentence that says, we're overturning Roe? And can we try and find some middle ground? So- Why did the court take this case? I think because at least four members knew, which is what you need to take a case, at least four members knew that there were five or six votes to re-examine Roe. Otherwise, if you don't have an intention of re-examining Roe, you don't take this case.
1: All right, this Mississippi law is hardly the first law targeted at overturning Roe v. Wade. There have been many new restrictive abortion laws passed in recent years, and they stepped up just this calendar year. But I looked at a number of recent polls to get an indication of what Americans think about this. Between 59% and 77% of Americans believe that abortion should remain legal. That depends on which poll you're looking at. The lines are exactly as you would expect them to be, with more Democrats favoring leaving Roe the way it currently stands and more Republicans believing that Roe should be overturned, along with a bevy of data that shows sometimes contradictory positions by Americans on the subject. So, Jessica, that leaves me with the question, what has shifted? Is it society? Maybe, maybe not. Is it the court? What is it?
0: Yeah, I think it's such a good question. And I really think it has to come back to it's the court right? I mean, this was former President Trump's promise. Elect me and I will appoint, quote unquote, pro-life judges who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And this has been the promise of the Federalist Society and the conservative movement for a long time. Obviously, Roe has been in the crosshairs. And I think... It's hard to see that there's been any major shift in society other than frankly, that we've relied on Roe for almost 50 years now. The shift really is that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Justice Amy Coney Barrett now has her seat. And Justice Kavanaugh is, I think, more conservative on these issues. At least it appears that way from oral argument from Justice Kennedy. And so again, what's the difference It's the court. It's this really conservative court where I know I said it before, but the fact that John Roberts is not even the swing vote, the conservative chief justice is not even the swing vote, it shows you that this is a moment that conservatives have been waiting for.
1: All right, so that's how we got here. Now let's get into what specifically happened in the court this week. Jessica, can we start with the big picture? What are your general impressions of the arguments this week?
0: You know. Joe, I had such a kind of strange experience listening to the almost two hours of oral arguments, which on the one hand, it was so predictable. As we've been talking about for so long, this case was coming. We knew it was going to be heard. We knew basically what was going to be argued. But then actually hearing the justices basically say the words, you know, we're comfortable eviscerating Roe, obviously they didn't say those words, but use a lot of words to get to the point of we're comfortable eviscerating Roe, there was still something shocking about it. And listening to you know, some of the justices, frankly, try and I think find cover for what they're going to do, which is to overturn Roe, again, totally predictable, nothing surprising, and still really shocking and frankly, kind of gutting. To hear. So that was my big takeaway, which is that the arguments were exactly what you would expect, and it still felt strangely unexpected.
1: All right, let's check in from each side here. Mississippi's attorney general argued first this week, arguing in favor of the law from his state. So, what did he say?
0: So the first thing that he really started out with is that Roe and Casey have no grounding in the constitution. And you heard him come back to this over and over again. He said, there's basically, there's no words in the constitution that say women have a right to obtain an abortion. There's no words in the constitution that say we're protecting reproductive choice. And he really continued to frame this. And I think, you know, this is a good legal strategy as just having no constitutional basis or grounding. And it was Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who frankly, I think was kind of the questioner of the day uh, when it came to members of the bench. And she said, there are a lot of things that aren't written in the constitution, for instance, like judicial review, like our ability to actually review a lot of what we do. And of course, you know, the electoral college also not in the Constitution. I mean, the right to privacy in general, not in the Constitution. And I think that, Joe, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but there's a lot of things where it's not written in the Constitution because you can't write everything in the Constitution, right? It's not a statute. It's a governing document with a set of broad principles. But If this goes the way I think it does, then you potentially call other things that, quote unquote, don't have constitutional grounding into question. So, you know, a lot of what we heard from Mississippi was, look, these cases were wrongly decided, they need to be overturned. One thing I'm going to note, Joe, is that when Mississippi came to the Supreme Court, they actually said, you can uphold our ban without overturning Roe. Now they've really changed strategy. Now they've said, no, just overturn Roe. The chief justice was really the only one to call them out on and say, you've really changed your position here. And the truth is, probably doesn't matter because they know they now have the right court to change their position and just go for the, the big grand slam um, in their view.
1: All right. So how did the justices respond to Mississippi's line of reasoning?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we talked kind of briefly about Justice Sonia Sotomayor saying, come on now, there's so much that isn't in the Constitution. And you also heard the other liberal justices, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan say, like, don't we really need to focus on stare decisis here? So stare decisis, of course, as we've talked about, is the general principle that you need to respect the court's prior decisions where at all possible. And you heard the justices really throughout the arguments struggling with that. I mean, there there basically are two things going on. There's will the court respect stare decisis and then inextricably linked what's happening to abortion rights. And to me, Joe, what was again kind of startling is that you heard a few of the justices, I specifically heard Justice Barrett say this, basically let's pretend there is no stare decisis for a minute. And what she's really saying is let's pretend that this Mississippi law comes to us as a matter of first impression. And of course, that's not our world. We know what this court would do if the Mississippi law came to it as a matter of first impression. But this court has 50 years of precedent that we've relied on that says there is a constitutionally protected right to an abortion. So you did hear particularly, you know, at that first part of the argument, and frankly, you know, permeating throughout, the the justices, and particularly the liberal justices, really saying, like, do we care about stare decisis at all anymore? Does that mean anything here?
1: So next up was Julie Rickelman. She's the senior director of litigation at the Center for Reproductive Rights, followed by the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Preloger. What did they both argue?
0: Yeah, well... If you give me a moment, I just have to say they were just both dazzling, and they were so good, so smart. And look, do I agree with their position? Yes. But separate from that, you just have to give them a hats off for being fantastic advocates. Now, of course, as you and I know, Joe, that may make no difference. It really may not make a difference as to who the better lawyer was or who had the better argument. But to pick up on the point that we were just talking about, Joe, they both really focused, I think, on two things. One, that this case isn't coming to the court as a matter of first impression, that in fact, there are almost half a century worth of precedents on this topic, where the court has in Roe made a decision, and then about 20 years later, in Casey made a decision to respect Roe. And you heard them really focusing on that and saying to the court, There's never been a time when you've overruled your past president to give people fewer rights, that this would be an enormous constriction, an enormous restriction of individual rights that you would implement by overturning your past case law. You've never done that before. I mean, obviously, when we think about the court overturning past president, we tend to think about cases like Brown v. Board, which essentially eviscerated the idea of separate but equal. And those were cases where you're enlarging individual rights. We also think about gay rights cases. We think about, you know, the change from Bowers to Lawrence. And I did think that that was, you know, while very powerful, probably won't win the day. And then they also talked about, you know, the practical implications of what would happen if you have a pre row world. And I do think it's important for that to be said in the Supreme Court chamber that, we would have two very different Americas with um, some women living in states where there's either essentially or no access to obtain an abortion.
1: All right. And given what you said was a dazzling performance in front of the bench, how did the justices respond to what those two women said?
0: So you really heard the justices kind of continue on the same themes that they had already started with. And what I thought was, again, just kind of stunning is you heard it, Justice Barrett and I believe at least Justice Kavanaugh also say some version of "Let's pretend that we can get past Starry Decisis," and of course that's not our world. I mean, again, there are fifty years of case law on this, and you know what else did we hear from the justices? I think we heard the liberal justices be urging the court to consider its own reputation to consider what's going to happen on the real world impact and to consider why it needs to respect its past decisions and to say we've decided that there is a right to privacy that's protected in our constitution we've decided that it includes intimate relationships that includes reproductive choice and there's nothing that's changed other than the composition of the court to get back to something we were just talking about that would allow us to make a different decision. You know, there were a couple of things that were said that probably are worth us highlighting here, Joe. Again, as I said before, you had the Chief Justice kind of saying, well, what's so different between 24 and 15 weeks? Basically saying, let's just get rid of the viability line, but keep Roe. And that's the Chief Justice trying to find a way to say, you know, I wasn't the Chief Justice that presided over overturning Roe, at least not yet. And it didn't really sound like he had any takers to that. Then you have you know Justice Kavanaugh, who keeps talking about this idea of constitutional neutrality. Well, the Constitution doesn't really tell us either way, and this is a really hard one, and there's competing interests, so let's just leave it to the states. Well, you know, that's what the justices do. They make difficult decisions. They make difficult constitutional decisions, and there often are competing interests. So... You know, you had to kind of prevent yourself from saying, like, Justice Kavanaugh, this, <laughs> this is your job. And what does constitutional neutrality mean? It's code for we overturn Roe and we leave it to the states and if they want to act, the federal government. And then one more thing I wanted to highlight, Joe, is that you heard Justice Barrett really spending some time talking about well, you know, if our concern here really is the burden of motherhood, not pregnancy, but if our concern is the burden of motherhood, then what about safe haven laws? You know, have a kid, drop the baby off at for instance a fire station and adoption will just solve that. And I just think that's that's stunning in the sense that one it ignores the burdens of pregnancy and two, it ignores all the burdens that go along with for both sides with adoption. And, you know, Joe, I don't want to sound like a partisan here, but it also, of course, is the case that then you need to have a social framework that actually does care for kids who are part of the system, uh, part of the adoption system. And you need to have a social framework that cares for kids if you are going to force women um, against their will to bear these children. And so those are kind of the three lines of questioning that I wanted to highlight.
1: And that, Jessica, brings us to tea leaf time. We already know that we'll have to wait until next June or July when the Supreme Court term ends to get the denouement of this story. So what do you think will happen when we get an opinion next summer?
0: Yeah, Joe, we've talked about this before, and I basically hold to what we previously said before the oral arguments, which is I think the only two options are that either you get at least five members of the court to say, we are overturning Roe, period. It's no longer the law of the land. Casey's no longer the law of the land. It's now up to the states. And again, women live in two very different Americas. Or somehow Chief Justice John Roberts goes back behind closed doors. They have their conference. And he says, look, the controlling opinion is going to be one where we say we're upholding some essential part, some central promise of Roe. It's still on the books, but it now just means that you can ban abortion after 15 weeks. And then this will lead to states trying to ban abortion at 12 weeks and 10 weeks and eight weeks and as Texas did at six weeks. And it will open the door then for those next challenges, I think. And Joe, as far as I can see, those are really the only two options. I no longer, after oral arguments, think there's... Any chance that the court says some version of just kidding, sorry that we took this case.
1: All right. And you said just now that after oral arguments, this doesn't end with just Roe. Now, that sounds fairly ominous to me. So, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So, basically, two things pretty briefly. One is that, as we talked about, Mississippi continued to argue, you know, there's no constitutional grounding here. The right to abortion isn't written in the Constitution. And the answer then is if Roe is a problem because of that, then there are other cases that are potentially a problem too. So we need to then think about the constitutional underpinnings of gay marriage. We need to think about the constitutional underpinnings of decisions that say you can't have anti-sodomy laws, the constitutional underpinnings of decisions that say uh, you can't ban unmarried couples, for instance, from obtaining contraception. Now, I don't think it goes that far, but if we really are arguing that there's no constitutional grounding based on this line of cases, then the whole line of cases looks kind of shaky. Um, The other thing is related to that, if, as we heard kind of alluded to, and I think explicitly at one time, if life really begins at conception and there's something called basically fetal personhood, then it's never proper to have an abortion. And then you have a situation where you don't have two Americas. You have one America where you can never obtain an abortion. And in some ways, that is the logical consequence of what um, some in the community are arguing. Again, I want to tell people and I want to you know, really emphasize that's not where we're going this summer, but those are some things to look for in the long term.
1: All right, Jessica, when it comes to abortion rights, that is more than a little disturbing. But let's remind our listeners before we move on what a post-Roe world might look like. According to data from the CDC, just under 630,000 abortions were reported in 2019, and there may be many more that go unreported. Now, when I was poking around about this, I found a book called When Abortion Was a Crime, published in 1996 and written by historian Leslie J. Reagan, and some of this information I culled from there. So before abortion was a lightning rod issue, the practice was relatively common in the United States until about 1880. It was legal after what was referred to at the time as the quickening. That's a vague point at which women said that they could feel movement by the fetus. And at that point, even the Catholic Church accepted the practice of abortion until what the church called ensoulment. Abortion became illegal in the United States in 1880, and it remained so until the Roe decision in 1973. But... That doesn't mean that women didn't have them. According to the Guttmacher Institute, by the 1950s and 1960s, American women had between 200,000 and 1.2 million abortions per year. As I said before in this discussion, Jessica, 2021 saw the highest number of abortion restrictions enacted in a single year. And that brings us back to that Mississippi law and the Supreme Court. Abortion rights look very different now than they did 10 years ago, and they may look radically different after the very real prospect that states may very likely be able to ban abortion essentially completely after next summer. One would be daft to think that the privileged would be unable to have abortions if that comes to pass, which makes this issue even more complicated than it seems on the surface. Remember that a not insignificant percentage of conservatives believe that abortion should remain legal. And I will leave you with something I once heard, Jessica, which is this quote, you can never ban abortion, you can only ban safe abortions. So let's now turn to the other big news of the day or this week, the arguments before the District of Columbia Circuit Court in the case of Trump versus the National Archives and Congress. We've been following this closely in recent episodes, Jessica, so remind us of the background in this case, generally speaking.
0: Right. So generally speaking, of course, we start with January 6th, where there's an insurrection of the Capitol. Then there's a House Select Committee that's formed to investigate that for completely rational reasons. We need to know, for instance, if the President of the United States attempted to stage a coup. And the House Select Committee subpoenaed a number of White House documents. The Biden administration being the current administration, obviously, Uh, looked at this and they said, you know what, we're waiving executive privilege. Essentially, you don't get to wrap yourself in the protection of the Constitution while you might be trying to subvert the Constitution. Uh, Former President Trump said, no, not so fast. I'm asserting executive privilege over these documents. Um, He eventually went to court to sue, and he first obviously had his moment in court for a preliminary injunction in the district court. He did not fare particularly well there. Uh, The court in that case said um, basically no dice, and we can talk about that more. And then he appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and we heard about um, three and a half hours of oral arguments, I think, uh, this week on that.
1: So what did that district court have to say? I know they've been somewhat vocal about this.
0: Yeah, so what the district court said is, look, we really need to give credence to the current occupants of the White House when it comes to assertions of executive privilege. That executive privilege is really about making sure that presidents can have, for instance, unfettered conversations uh, when they're trying to make difficult decisions and with knowing that they can ask whatever questions they want and that they might not have to turn those documents over to Congress later. And also so that they can have discussions about national security, knowing that they might not have to turn those documents over to Congress later. But it is a qualified privilege. It's not absolute. And the district court really said, Look, the public's interest in knowing is very, very strong here. Congress has asked for it. The current occupant of the White House has waived executive privilege. And executive privilege is not about protecting one president. It's about protecting the presidency, period. And I think that's why President Trump, former President Trump, lost in the district court.
1: All right, I know that you listened to about three and a half hours earlier this week of those oral arguments that happened on Tuesday. Can you please parse what you heard for us, the laypersons? What do you think we should take away from those arguments?
0: So I think the takeaway is this was a three-judge panel, and all of the judges were appointed by uh, Democrats, and it was not a favorable draw for former President Trump, and I just think that they weren't buying it. They asked a lot of really good, really detailed questions, but it really boils down to how we're going to balance the interests of Congress to investigate, um, of the current occupants of the White House, who are frankly best situated to make these determinations, and then the former president, who frankly is not best situated to make determinations that protect the presidency as opposed to any single president. So lots and lots of really detailed arguments, but for me, those were the big takeaways.
1: All right. And to reiterate just a bit, tell us what a ruling for Trump could mean, generally speaking.
0: So. Generally speaking, I mean, what would happen, it would really upend the separation of powers and the relationship between a current president and a former president. And it would really allow a former president to have a veto in a really weird and frankly inappropriate way over Congress saying we need this information and the current occupant of the White House saying, yes, Congress, you do. No objection by us. Two branches of the government agree it would then allow the former occupant of the White House to override that. That just doesn't make sense legally or practically.
1: All right, then, Jessica, on the flip side, as you expect to happen if Trump eventually loses, where then is this case headed?
0: So basically, Trump has two options. He can say, I want the whole D.C. circuit, not just these three judges to review it. He can ask for an en banc, Um, or he can, and I don't think that he'll be successful, or he can appeal to the Supreme Court. And I don't, you know, even this very conservative Supreme Court where he appointed a third of the members, I frankly don't think he'd be successful there either.
1: OK, Jessica, before we go, here comes Captain Obvious. Can you please remind us, me and everyone else, who won the 2020 election?
0: Uh, checks, notes, check note. Uh, right. That would be President Joe Biden.
1: OK, thank you so very much for that clarification. And before we go this topic, remind us again why that matters when it comes to executive privilege.
0: Well, look, because Biden trumps Trump in this case. I mean, I don't want to be too trite about it, but because the current occupant of the White House is the person in the best position to make a determination about how strong executive privilege should be in any circumstance and how executive privilege is going to act to protect the presidency while also balancing that against the public's right to obtain information about how its government works. and. Let's remember in this case, this is about obtaining information to see if there was an attempted coup to thwart the peaceful transfer of power, really strong public interest in obtaining this information.
1: Thank you, Jessica. That brings us to our last topic for this week's episode. A sad topic. A 15-year-old boy named Ethan Crumbly has been charged with terrorism, murder, and other charges after he shot up his high school this week, an event during which four students were killed and seven additional people were wounded. Jessica, I am loath to say this, but save for the terrorism charge, these are fairly standard charges and yet another mass shooting incident in America. What is unique is that today, charges were also filed against Crumbly's parents James and Jennifer Crumbly they face four counts of involuntary manslaughter and prosecutors say that Crumbly's parents were criminally negligent. James Crumbly purchased the pistol used in the rampage on Black Friday, just four days before the incident took place. Prosecutors say that a teacher witnessed Ethan Crumbly searching ammunition on his phone during class the day prior to the shooting. That teacher then alerted school officials. The school then contacted Jennifer Crumbly, at least attempted to, via voicemail and email, and there was no response from either parent. Text messages between Ethan and Jennifer Crumbly show that the thread contained the following from Jennifer, that's the mother, quote, LOL, I am not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. That's pretty ominous. The crumbly parents were summoned to the school on the morning of the incident, and they were instructed to get their son counseling in the next 48 hours. His backpack, which was in that meeting, was not checked by any school officials. The initial investigation also revealed that the gun was being stored in an unlocked drawer in the parents' bedroom. So Jessica, how rare is it for people like parents to be charged in an incident such as this? Is this a new way to try and address these kinds of incidents involving gun violence?
0: I think that's a great question. And, and it might be. And this, I, you know, if the facts give rise to that. So in this case, I think based on how the gun was stored and how they had an awareness of how it might be used, um, that these charges look, at least at the very initial point, they look appropriate. And yes, this could be a way to not only charge the person who actually shoots the gun but to charge those who allow that person to shoot the gun, to go, you know, one step basically down the line.
1: All right, we'll keep an eye on that as we always do. Thank you so very much, Jessica. Thank you, Joe. Thanks to everyone for listening to Passing Judgment. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In Day. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thanks ever so much for listening, everyone. We will talk to you soon.